Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates, contemplates, and sometimes criticizes current classic and cult films. And we also talk a lot about history. History's big here. I'm Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night, and I'm pleased to welcome my guest tonight, um, a very special man indeed, well-versed in film history, television history, history per se, Steve Stolyer. Hello, Steve. Howdy, Steve. He said to you himself back again, the same names. How are you? I'm good. Steve is a good name. Have you noticed lately that Steve's have virtually disappeared from new baby names? You never hear Steve anymore. It's just very sad. It's all designer stuff. Let me talk, let me talk a little bit about you. Steve Stoyer has been a professional writer for more than 30 years, providing material for Dick Cavett, as well as writing episodes of such television series as Murder, She Wrote, Simon and Simon, the new WKRP in Cincinnati, and Sliders. But most interesting to us as a film history audience is his very, very popular book, Raised Eyebrows, which is the bittersweet story of the last years in the life of Groucho Marx as told by a young Marx Brothers fan who was fortunate enough to work for Groucho as his personal secretary and archivist. And most recently, Steve has written a book called Salamis and Swastikas, Letters Home from a G.I. Jew, which is based on the, uh, the letters that your father wrote, I believe, which we, yes. will be we will be talking about a little bit later. But let's start um, at the very beginning, which is a very good place to start. Thank you. Um, tell me about your childhood. Were you a child in love with media? Were you, were, you, were you encouraged to watch a lot of stuff when you were a kid? I don't know that I was encouraged to watch a lot of stuff, but I watched a lot of stuff anyway. And, um, you know, we had a Zenith black and white TV until 1965 when we got an RCA Victor color set. Uh, they used to have great commercials for an RCA Victor color set, easy to use as it can. But I always wondered, what's the point of advertising a color TV on the black and white set? How are you supposed to appreciate why their product is so great? That is one so of the mysteries of life. And yet these color TV newfangled things caught on. Um, boy, I always loved watching TV and watching old movies and silent movies on TV. I liked going to the show, as we called it. What, uh, what city did you grow up in? Uh, assuming I've grown up. I, I was born in St. Louis and uh, we moved out to LA when I was rapidly approaching eight. Oh, so we're very close because I arrived in LA from Chicago at five. So... I don't remember. Well, of course, the time difference, that explains it. <laughs> what community did you move into? What uh, uh, San Fernando Valley. Oh. And I'm still there, but, you know, in and around being in the Valley, I went to UCLA. I lived in New York for a few years in the early 80s and then somehow managed to roll back into the valley. I'm also a UCLA grad, go Bruins. Um, <laughs> so in terms, of your, in terms of your writing career, um, what, what, were, what were the influences that pointed you in the writing direction? I think I always had a, a, a flair for writing. I remember in fifth grade, uh, just for the hell of it, I wrote a short, short story about uh, a friendly alien creature from another planet that, that comes to Earth and I befriend it. And I can only take it out at Halloween time because everyone else is in outfits that look similar and that wouldn't draw a strange look. So I've always felt that I, my story was the genesis of E.T. And I think there's a multi-billion dollar lawsuit in the offing because of my short story from, from fifth grade from Mr. Patton's class at Collier Street School. And then in junior high, I won a, a blue ribbon for, uh, I think the, the assignment was 
that the teacher read a short story except the ending and we had to write an ending oh. and my ending was he thought was the best so then <clears throat> in high school i developed something of an a name for myself for writing parodies of mr cook's biology tests um, he would give the biology test and then i would go home and type up a parody of it and circulate it and people would giggle at it and one time he he said what is everybody laughing at and it was like oh man i'm gonna get in trouble and he asked for a copy of it so i gave it to him and he loved it and had copies mimeographed and given to other faculty members, which was very flattering that I didn't get in trouble. So, so, I, huh? so, so comedy early on was an influence. It was. Uh, I was class clown at my high school. I had uh, had a great history teacher, Miss Harper, that I stayed in touch with for many years after graduating. She was great. And she was good because she would tell us, you were talking, mentioning history earlier, she would tell us the human side of historical figures instead of just 1776 and 1812 and 1865. She would tell us interesting human interest angles. I remember her telling us about Ben Franklin and saying when he was 80 years old, he had a 16 year old mistress and he fathered 13 illegitimate children at which point i called out well he did invent the lightning rod you know <laughs> this got a blast of light you know what the pressurized atmosphere of a classroom is but that got a thunderclap of laughter and uh, and she liked it too so again it saved me rather than getting me in trouble and that's great uh, when, when, you, I, when you arrived at UCLA, did you plan on staying with the creative pursuits or did you uh, move into a new area? I had always had a passion for history and archaeology and paleontology. So for the first two years at UCLA, I was a history major. I, I stayed interested in old movies, especially old comedy, classic comedies. And I still would hammer out little short humorous things for myself and for friends. Uh, I remember when Laugh-In was on, uh, they had a spinoff called Letters to Laugh-In and you were encouraged to send in jokes. And I sent some jokes in and got a letter back from the head writer that said, you obviously have an ear for humor and should be encouraged to keep at it. And that was shortly after my mom died and it meant a lot to me to get that kind of positive feedback <clears throat> at what was otherwise a very low point. So in college, I didn't really think you could do anything with old movies and comedy as, as if being a history major was a golden pathway to riches beyond my wildest dreams. You, you and I are such kindred spirits because I was a history major at UCLA uh -huh. and I I actually was applying my writing toward journalism because I was a Daily Bruin staffer during Watergate. So oh, wow. uh, uh, definitely, I'm, I definitely identify with you. When I got out of college, I, um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I, I thought about television news reporting for a while, and that didn't, that didn't really take because I couldn't picture myself shoving microphones into people's faces who didn't want to speak to me. So I just started writing my first book. Was, was Raising Eyebrows your first book? Raised Eyebrows is my first book. Um, I guess we're sort of jumping around, but that's okay. Uh, the thing that changed me from being a history major to being a motion picture television major and graduating with a Bachelor of Arts degree that did not even entitle me to a discount at Mann's Theaters, but at least <laughs> I had was getting the job working for Groucho Marx as his archivist and uh, sec personal secretary for the last three years of his life. And that was such a remarkable experience. Over the years, I would tell people 
anecdotes about, you know, they would mention someone and I had a story about them or they'd ask me something and I'd have a story about that. And they would say, you should write a book about this. And I would think, no, no, it's just, it's the tail end of his life. It wasn't even during You Bet Your Life, much less the classic films. I'm such a footnote to his story. But I thought at one point, I thought maybe I could hammer something out that would work as a, like a Vanity Fair or Esquire article. Maybe well, back, if I, back if up I a, I'm sorry, back up just for a second, because um, you don't open the LA Times and see an ad for Groucho Marx Archivist. How did you get this job? Well, you were asking me if Raised Eyebrows was my first book, so I was explaining how it became my first book, and now you're telling me, don't answer that one, answer this one. <laughs> Be that as it may, and I doubt that it is, which Steve Allen said in a letter to me, which so I quote that. Be that as it may, and I doubt that it is. Well, as I say, I was a big fan of vintage comedy, and especially the Marx Brothers, and of the Marx Brothers, especially Groucho. And there was their second film, Animal Crackers, was made in 1930. And because of a legal snafu, uh, <clears throat> the rights reverted back to the authors and composers of the Broadway play of Animal Crackers. And so when Paramount's old movies were sold to Universal in the late 50s, Animal Crackers was in the package, but they didn't have the right to syndicate it in their TV offerings where you would see that big shield that said, uh, MCA TV release. And I used to want to run up to the screen and add an N and make it an MCA, not uh, MCA. Anyway, be, be that as it was, uh, I thought I really wish someone would realize there's a market for, for clearing the rights to this Marx Brothers movie because it was their second film, Groucho plays Captain Jeffrey Spaulding, his theme song, Hooray for Captain Spaulding, comes from it. It was all four brothers at the height of their power. So I started a, uh, a committee and a petition drive at UCLA to put pressure on Universal to re-release Animal Crackers. And I got in touch with Erin Fleming, who was the controversial woman in charge of Groucho's life at that time. And she talked to Groucho and they agreed to come to UCLA to sit and talk with me and the reporters about our cause. And it was so funny because Bruin Walk, which you may remember, was there would be tables for all of these special interest groups. There was gay rights and end the war, legalized marijuana, Hare Krishna. And then there's our table to get animal crackers reviewed. <laughs> and yet people were still hesitant to sign the petition saying, you have to be a registered voter. Are, are copies of this gonna go to the government? Do you have to be? It's like they were so paranoid after the whole Watergate thing. I, we would get people that said, I'm, I'm all for this. I, I, boy, I just don't wanna sign my name to anything. But, Groucho and Aaron came to UCLA and there were hundreds of <clears throat> t-shirted tennis shod teenagers uh, hanging on his every word and news, not newsreels, but the different uh, TV news cameras were there and reporters. And there I was sitting next to my hero that I never, ever, ever thought I would get to meet. I said, Groucho, I'm very happy to be meeting you after all this time. And he said, well, you should be. And Aaron said, this is Steve Stolier. He's trying to get, he's the one that's trying to get animal crackers out. And Groucho said, well, did you get it? And I said, not, not uh, yet, but I'm working on it. And he said, well, you better or I'll fire you. <laughs> and I said, I didn't even realize I was working for you. How much are you paying me? And he said, a little less than nothing. And it's like we were off and running and my heart was just pounding out of my shirt. It was so exciting. And of course, heightened by the fact that cameras were trained on us and microphones thrust in our faces. And, uh, and he was great, you know. Uh, I remember one reporter said, Mr. Marks, what is the purpose of your appearance here today? And he said, I expect to get lunch. And she said, well, but no, I mean, besides that. 
I made you dinner. But in and around that, he talked about Animal Crackers and that it was one of their best movies and it should be released and we could use more comedy in the world. And uh, one reporter said, what do you think about how the, the young generation is embracing the craziness of the Marx Brothers? And Groucho said, well, I'm flattered by all the attention. Last Halloween, three kids came to the door dressed as Groucho, Hoppo, and Chico. And I said, what did you give them? And he said, I sent for the police. So, you know, he had slowed because of health problems. He was in his mid eighties, but the mechanism that made him Groucho was still there. So the movie came out and uh, Universal sort of humored us. They, they put a, uh, one print at the UA Westwood and one in New York. And it was like, here, we've put it out. We don't want to hear about this anymore. And it ended up breaking the house record at the UA Westwood that had been set by the French Connection. And my roommate, Daryl, and I used to sit at the coffee shop across from the theater, Arthur J's, and we would look at this line of kids down the brick wall of the theater thinking we did that and we were right. It wasn't just a handful of nerds that wanted to see this movie. So I had a few summer jobs fall through that summer for which I remain eternally grateful. And with my back against the wall, I figured I, I got nothing to lose. So I called Aaron and I said, is there anything at all that you think maybe I might perhaps be? And she said, well, actually I used to be Groucho's secretary but now I'm his manager and we need someone who really knows their Marx Brothers <clears throat> to handle all of the fan mail that's been coming in and to organize all of his memorabilia, which is going to the Smithsonian. And I'm thinking, please, 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 please. And sure enough, she offered me the job and they were going to pay me money and I figured it was going to be in a, like an office building on Wilshire Boulevard and Groucho would come in once or twice a month to sign checks or something. <clears throat> she said, oh, no, dear, uh, there's a, a room in the house that you can have as your office and uh, you can make your own hours. And I thought, I don't believe how I stumbled into this. And initially I worked seven days a week that summer because I just couldn't get enough of it. I just, it was just like swimming in chocolate sauce. What, what community did he live in? He lived in Beverly Hills above Sunset in a tract area called Truesdale Estates. He was uh, up the hill from Maury Amsterdam and down the hill from Danny Thomas on Hillcrest. <clears throat> and, uh, I never took a minute of it for granted. It never got to be routine. Um, one of the, my favorite compliments that I get these days from people who read the book is, I hate you. And it's like, well, you know, I would probably hate me too if I met me being as big a Groucho fan as I was and meeting some schnook that just lucked into this dream literal dream job because I used to dream about meeting him and they would be really vivid dreams and then as they would dissolve and I'd wake up I'd think damn it shit 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 it was a dream it was so real like so yeah uh, I understand when people hate me uh Steve, Steve was was grog you know you you hear about performers you know making money spending money losing money and at the end of their career they have nothing was was Groucho in his chips at that time? Did he have money? I mean, was he one? He saved? had he had money. He wasn't fabulously wealthy. He wasn't like Bob Hope owning half the valley or something like that. But he lost his first fortune during the stock market crash, which was really traumatic for him because you know all those hard scrabble years on the road in vaudeville, and then they finally made it on Broadway in in coconuts and animal crackers and they're going to be making their first movie coconuts and then 1929 bang and he was back to square one it was like the balloon exploded 
So he had to make up for that for with his remaining Hollywood films and then with You Bet Your Life, which was his favorite job because he said it was the easiest work that paid the best and asked the least of him. He would come in once a week and go over with the staff who the contestants were and possible things he might say, and then sit in a chair and, and light up his cigar and talk to them and <clears throat> dazzle the audience and then get this bundle of money from NBC. So he, and he had better financial advice <clears throat> in the second part of his life than he did from uh, listening to the guys that said, invest in the stock market, you can't go wrong. <clears throat> but it helped, it also helped me appreciate, you know, to us, the stock market crash, I mean, it's almost a hundred years ago now, 1929. But it, it, it was just a mind blower to be in the presence of someone who was born in 1890. Um, he was literally a Victorian. I mean, he wasn't British, but Victoria was on the throne when he was born and, and was there for 11 years into his life. So he remembered the turn of the century and the Wright brothers. And, it, you know, in addition to personally knowing George Gershwin and James Thurber and Robert Benchley and W.C. Fields and all these mythic figures. Um, so he was, it was a remarkable time capsule to be able to spend time with him. So yeah, he had, you know, he had some millions when he died, but he didn't live a lavish lifestyle. He tended to be frugal. Um, he's, he's, so it, yeah. it wasn't like some, some Sunset Boulevard the film mansion, you know, it was oh, a sure. house was built in the fifties and one level, but it was, he wasn't hurting. Well, it's a, it's a cliche to say somebody is a one of a kind, but I would have to say that the, in the history of comedy, particularly thirties, forties, fifties, there was nobody like Groucho. I mean, there are a lot of comics around, but he, he and what his brothers did in those wonderfully uh, revolutionary films and they were all kind of constantly doing their own revolutions against the standards I I, I like yourself I, I embraced the, the movies although I have to tell you that the first time I ever watched a Marx Brothers movie I watched it by mistake I had a, I had got a flu so I stayed home from school one day and the afternoon movie was Monkey Business now I had seen the uh, Cary Grant uh Ginger Marilyn Rogers Monroe, monkey right. business. So I thought it was going to be that movie with Marilyn Monroe. And then this crazy group of guys comes on the screen on an ocean liner and it's hysterical. So I, I, and then of course the Marx brothers revival, I would say in the early seventies where they had triple features at right. the universal amphitheater, right. things like that. So what is your appraisal of Groucho as performer with his brothers? What, what, what would you say is their place in the history of Hollywood? Boy, it's hard for me to, to rank them. Uh, uh, and of course, it's always uh, a matter of personal taste because people will wrestle you to the ground about whether Laurel and Hardy were funnier than Abbott and Costello or the Three Stooges more than the Ritz brothers. Or, you know, you can't say, no, you're wrong. These guys were funnier. But what appealed to me personally was that they were such a seamless blend of physical comedy and clever wordplay. You know, I mean, the Three Stooges were basically all slapstick, heavy-handed, literally physical comedy. And then you had like Abbott and Costello with the misunderstandings back and forth. But the Marsh Brothers had that too with Chico's misunderstanding what Groucho's talking about. And then of course, you know, being a, a wonderfully entertaining pianist. And then I know some people are, are bored when Harpo sits down at the harp, but uh, I, I think it adds to the films and, I, and it shows how talented these guys were. And then you have Groucho with lines written by S.J. Perelman and George S. Kaufman and some of the wittiest people of the first half of the 20th century uh, thumbing his nose at authority and, uh, you know, at least in the, I, I'm one of the purists that I will take the weakest Paramount film against the strongest MGM film. I know a lot of people adore A Night at the Opera and Day at the Races, 
for me, they mark the beginning of the end because they're, they're plot heavy and romance heavy and song heavy. And not just the solos from Chico and Harpo, but you know, Alan Jones singing the Kitty Carlisle. And, and you lose the anarchy of those Paramount films that just, you know, they were like 75 minutes long and they're just like being shot out of a cannon. You know, the, there's that golden trio of like monkey business, horse feathers and duck soup. And I think it's just an unbeatable the first two are a little stiff. They're based on their Broadway shows and they were shot in, in, in uh, New York on a soundstage before they had boom microphones. So there wasn't a lot of room to move around and still catch what they're saying. But when they came to California in 31 and did Monkey Business, Horse Feathers and Duck Soup, they just, there just isn't any fat on those bones, you know? It's just wonderful crazy irreverent stuff and uh um you know you meant you mentioned um the, the the use of language i think that one of the things my own writing partner and i billy reback who you know yeah we're always wondering what happened to language and comedy because it seems to me that Although Woody Allen certainly practiced it, and certainly people like Albert Brooks carried forth, although not much longer, the idea of playing with language seems to have somewhat disappeared from comedy. It's now, we've actually gone back to either very slapstick or very raunchy. Yeah. Uh, boy, I don't know. It's hard not to sound arrogant in talking about this, but you asked me. I think it's part of it is the dumbing down of America that the public schools, we don't, you don't get the background now that we got in history and writers. Uh, this is separate from my rant against political correctness where Huck Finn and Dr. Seuss are forbidden fruit now. But, uh, <clears throat> and you know, the point was made to me quite a while ago that because television sets used to be expensive, they tended to be purchased by wealthy, well-educated people. I'm talking about like the early 50s. So you were able to have game shows with people like Oscar Levant and Clifton Fadiman, you know, what's my line and I've got a secret. And, uh, and you know, those panel shows that had these witty Broadway personages with clever were Bennett surf and clever wordplay and all this stuff. And, it, and they were wildly successful. And then as TV sets got cheaper and average people could buy them, I think the common denominator got lower and you were able to get away with, you know, throwing pies at each other before the clock buzzes and uh, slapstick stuff instead of clever stuff. And I think it's just sort of been a, this decrescendo since then. I'm always having to try to stick up on Facebook for, for the Algonquin Roundtable people or Max Schulman or S.J. Perelman, people, some of whom I you know, met personally, but it's tough to keep, uh, to keep that flame lit. And now, of course, and you know, and now I'm sounding like one of those these kids today. They don't know. They don't remember. They got <laughs> well, their, now, now you they got their Twitter machine. And they send out their twits or something. Now, as as this uh, this wonderful assistant uh, secretary archivist in uh, at the gate of the Groucho uh, Temple, I assume that a lot of people came to pay homage to. Mr. Marx, and you were present when those people came to visit. I was, and what was really cool was I, they, it, they didn't know who I was, but they figured if I was on the inside, I must be okay, whether I'm his grandson, they didn't know. So I was able to meet and under very comfortable circumstances, usually often having lunch with them, Steve Allen and Jack Lemon and George Burns and Mae West and Bob Hope and S.J. Perelman and Matt Perrin, these names that I would see roll by at the end of their movies are some of the greatest films. Nunnally Johnson, who was one of the biggest creative forces of 20s. I mean, he wrote the, the script to Grapes of Wrath with Henry Fonda. 
uh, I, Groucho and I got to visit him. He and Groucho were old friends. And it was just fabulous getting to, to be comfortable with these people. And then they appreciated when, you know, when they started talking to me, they realized that I wasn't just some, oh, I know you're, I know you're like famous, right, dude? That, that, that I actually could rattle off, you know, that their point of view was sort of like, you don't know who any of us Altecacas are, do you? And I would say, you're Nat Perrin, you worked on monkey business and duck soup and you created the Adams family. You're Irving Brecker, you wrote at the circus and go west and worked on Meet Me in St. And it was like, and Groucho appreciated that too, that we weren't all pot smoking, hippie, heavy metal people, but that he appreciated that I, that I gave a shit about Gershwin and Berlin. And Did and, you ever and, meet a writer named Robert Pyrosh? Uh, I didn't meet him. I know he worked on uh, Day at the Races. Yes, yes. I, I was, I, while you were working with Groucho, I was researching all the great war films from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And in fact, one of my interview subjects was Nunley Johnson talking uh, about the, the Desert Fox, the yeah, Rommel um, biopic. So definitely. Um, well, you know, what, a, what an amazing... So how long did you last with Roger? Did you last till his death? I lasted till just past his death when I was obsolete, but I was there the weekend after he died, just kind of finishing up. And it was you know, there had been so many false, uh, you know, times when we thought this is it, he's, he's down for the count, we'll never see him again, and then he'd spring back. So finally, when it really was his time to go, um, it was that blend of sadness and relief that anyone who's had to deal with a very elderly relative or friend. And I remember uh, Betty Comden called the house uh, half of the writing team of Comden and Green that did Singing in the Rain and the Bandwagon. And she said, is Aaron there? And I said, no. And she said, oh, is Arthur there? And I said, no. And she said, I don't know who to console. And for want of anything else, I said, I guess we should console ourselves. Uh, and that it ended up sort of being that way because there had been, you know, these two factions that hated each other, the Aaron faction and the Arthur faction. So when Groucho died, people just kind of felt like they fell between the cracks if they weren't in good with one side or the other. So when, uh, for the listeners who aren't familiar with these people, uh, Arthur was his son, correct? Yes, Arthur Marks was a Arthur writer. Marks and, and Aaron was there. this woman who, uh, had a reputation over the years of being rather domineering. Domineering and mercurial, and was actually literally diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. And so while I have compassion for people that have psychological problems, it was difficult watching her scream and throw hissy fits and, and it would upset Groucho and his blood pressure would shoot up. It was very difficult trying to stay on her good side, assuming she had one. But then he loved having her around. So it was a very delicate balance trying to be there for him, but not piss her off because if once you're fired, what have you accomplished? But I managed to be there through the end. And now uh, <clears throat> after a lot of waiting and hoping and back and forth and false starts and all this, there is finally going to be a film version of Raised Eyebrows. Um, I co-wrote the screenplay with a very talented writer-director named Oren Moverman, who did the uh, Brian Wilson uh, by Love and Mercy. And right, of course. Nominated of course. for an Oscar for The Messenger. Anyway, uh, and Jeff Groucho. and Jeff Jeffrey Rush is going to play Groucho. He's what play a Groucho. brilliant idea! He can't wait. We were so lucky; it was equal. He his agent had heard about it before we had a chance to ask him, and it, so it was. It was as you, as our people say, it was beshared. It was written that Jeffrey Rush should be Groucho Marx. Um, but that's really how it worked out, and he can't wait. He said Groucho was such a big influence on him. 
And I was blown away. He said, by the way, thank you, Steve, for getting animal crackers re-released because even in Australia, I didn't get to see it till you got it re-released in 74. So you never know. So you see, George, you don't know how many other lives you touched by saving your brothers from drowning. Um, and Aaron Fleming will be Sienna Miller. And then the third lead is, is, is you. 20-year-old Steve Stolier, played by a young actor named Charlie Plummer. And uh, is I was a good looking guy. Is he a good looking guy? Right. So we have nothing in common. Uh, I've said that we look enough alike to be neighbors. <laughs> or if you if you put a picture of me at 20 next to him, they're eerily dissimilar. But, you know, I was I'm I longtime friends with Woody Allen, which is something for a separate show. But he had invited me to come watch him film uh part of cafe society when he was out here in, in 2015 he said you know feel free to come by and learn how not to make a film so i hung out on the set and one of the first things he wanted to know what's happening with your movie is happening and we would talk about dream casting who could be groucher and then he said and you nobody knows what you look like you could get orlando bloom to play you so <laughs> It's not Orlando Bloom, but he's right. Only my sisters and cousins are going to give a shit that Charlie Plummer doesn't really look like I did. It's the character, and does he have the chops to play the role? And and Oren has worked with him, and and uh, he does great work. So we're looking to film this fall, which I'm sure will be upon us before we know it. And it, believe me, is going to be beyond surreal to walk onto a set that is meant to recreate a house I spent the better part of three years in, seeing people play people that I knew personally, including myself at 20. It's, it, it's that's whatever meta means, that, that's it. You well, know? If, I, if I was going to go back to that house, back into when you were working there, I think the thing I would probably first expect is a lot of cigar smoke. Well, there was, but it wasn't his. It, he, had, he had given up cigars, for which I was eternally grateful because I hate the smell of a cigar. I like the smell of a pipe, although I don't smoke, and cigarettes are annoying, but to me, cigars were the worst. And because of his health and his arteries and all that, he had to give them up a couple of years before I came on board. So I didn't get to watch Groucho smoke, but that didn't stop Milton Berle. It didn't stop George Burns. At lunch, after, after we finished lunch, George Burns took out a cigar and pushed it into a little plastic holder. He said, I never smoke expensive cigars. All I care about is if it fits the holder. <laughs> now, Milton Berle pays $2 a piece for his cigars. If I paid that much, I'd go to bed with it before I'd smoke it. So all sorts of people around him smoked it, but mercifully, I didn't have to immerse myself in uh, cigar smoke. Well, I think that all of us who love the Marx Brothers owe you a debt because of how you've preserved not only Animal Crackers, but Groucho's story in book and now future film. I, yeah. I think we're all excited because uh, the, that's the kind of movie people get excited about. I mean, yes, they're, well, making, you know, they're making Iron Man 5, but yeah. I'm more excited about uh, Raised Eyebrows. Is that going to be the title? Uh, no one has suggested it shouldn't be, but that doesn't mean that uh, alleged marketing wizards won't come in and say, hey, I have a better idea. How about you bet your life or something like that? Um, so let's, and let's, and let's, because, yeah. because it's Groucho towards the end, my personal feeling is that it's very difficult to do a biopic about a famous person of the 20th century when you're inundated with the real thing. When you try to play W.C. Fields or someone really famous and you're pushing against the real deal. And I think it would be similar with Groucho if we tried to do something that took place in the 30s. But you know, the analogy I draw is Ed Wood, that Martin Landau wasn't playing Lugosi making Dracula and the Raven and the Black Cat. He was in his Ed Wood period, frail and drug addled and in ill health. And he won an Oscar for that. And I think it's, 
it's an easier buy to have someone play the old Groucho. The other way to go would be to have someone play someone as a child or before they were famous, because you're not pushing against the real thing all the time. Well, so well, I well, re recently, the um, I think it was a very good film. Uh, I, I liked the Laurel and Hardy movie that was done where they go to England. I thought they did a really good job. My main problem with it, was, you know, I know that you have to make all sorts of compromises <clears throat> uh, because it's not a documentary. It's a film based on a true story. But the central story of the Laurel and Hardy film was the schism between them, the acrimony, the big breakup and reunion, which never happened. And to me, that it's sort of, they've tilted the pinball machine to use a very old analogy sure uh, they went that's a little too far when you have the central it's like having a married couple get divorced when they never got divorced uh for the sake of having conflict in it so that did bug me but in terms of of buying the people you're watching under the makeup they did a better job of that than is often the case when you have someone play someone famous. I, I never believed anthony hopkins was richard nixon Right, right. Well, let's let's switch gears for a little bit here. Yes, let's, sir. Let, let's talk about your dad, which inspired this new book out this year, Salami and Swastikas, Letters Home from a G.I. Jew. I mean, such an interesting uh, moniker for this uh, <laughs> story. Uh, I guess you grew up uh, with a father that would talk about the war because many of them yes. wouldn't. Yes, he was not one of those that was so traumatized that he wouldn't bring it up. Uh, so if I, could, if I wanted to know any specific things, he was very open about all of that. But my sisters and I didn't read these letters till years after he died. And they were such a revelation, not just in terms of our family, because I would never have gone through the chore of retyping hundreds and hundreds of letters totaling thousands of pages, ladies and gentlemen, if I didn't think that there was, uh, that it was a treasure trove and a time capsule of the 40s uh, with thumbnail reviews of movies and discussions about comparing notes with my mom on singers and, and what's in the, um, uh, your hit parade, in addition to all the stuff about Hitler and, and the Holocaust and all that stuff, and filtered through the prism of this, just this, this GI from St. Louis, who was a secular Jew. He was never, you know, he didn't go to temple. He didn't honor the Sabbath. He didn't speak Hebrew. But you watch him get more in touch with his heritage as he hangs out with fellow Jews and is invited to dinners at, at the homes of Jews in Algeria and Italy and France and Germany. And Steve, Steve uh, what unit was he in? He, he was a, a staff sergeant with, uh, in, in the supply section of the Signal Corps of the Army. Oh, okay. Uh, so, and I learned a lot about supply lines, you know, it, it's it now, of course, everyone knows about it because of what's going on with Russia and you and Ukraine, but it wasn't until I was reading his letters that I realized that the tank seems like this indomitable fighting machine. Nothing can stop it tremble as it moves into your town, but if it runs out of gas, it's just a hunk of iron or steel absolutely useless and he talks about all of the materiel that was left behind by the nazis uh as they were retreating and also that they were running out of fuel and then talking about how often his unit had to keep moving up to keep up with like Patton's army as they got towards the battle of the bones um <clears throat> and the re you know the title the reason salamis made it into the title was because I was gobsmacked by how often dad wrote to mom about wanting a kosher salami sent to him. And I didn't even realize that Katz's Deli in New York, their motto is send a salami to your boy in the army because Mr. and Mrs. Katz had three sons who were in World War II and they wanted salami sent to them. And so that became their, 
but dad gets a hankering for this. And, you know, anyone that's been in the service knows about, you know, what are the things that remind you of home? What do you miss the most? And the first couple of times she sends them, they, they rot on the way from St. Louis to Europe because they're sitting in the hold of a ship for the summer and they just spoil. And he talks about the excitement of getting the package and tearing open the paper and the strings and all this. And then it smells like a dog died or something. And then, and then finally she's able to get ones through to him that, that are okay. And then he starts asking for kosher pickles and uh, he even, he, she even sent him a can of shrimp and he said, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna open it yet until I get some cocktail sauce. And I thought, this is like something out of MASH with Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould playing golf in the middle of the Korean War. Here he is, you know, trying to avoid the Luftwaffe strafing their Jeeps and, uh, bombs you know he almost got hit by a bomb but it was a dud he said there was this loud whoosh and it crashed through the ceiling and we realized it was a dud and you know there's all these near misses and but he's going to hold off until he gets the cocktail sauce for there's a great sense of humor that runs through it one of you know he gives mom little thumbnail reviews of movies he says i saw to have and have not I don't think this Lauren Bacall is going to be around much longer, maybe one or two more movies and that. She's a flash in the pan because her voice is too deep. And then once he said, well, I just got back from the movie. It was nothing to write home about, so I won't. And I remember thinking, how often do you get a cliche like that that's literal? Nothing to write home about, so he's not going to write home about. So it's just, there's just so much in there in addition to the granular reportage of what's happening, you know, historical things, the death of Roosevelt that just totally wiped everyone out. It was so sudden and it was towards the end of the war in Europe uh, and they were all almost giddy thinking it's about to end. We beat Hitler, da, 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 and then Roosevelt died. And then there's dad's worry about whether he's gonna get sent to the Pacific, which again, my ignorance, I didn't realize that, that they did that back then. I thought the guys that fought in Europe fought the Nazis and then went home and the ones that fought the Japanese went home. But no, he was, every other letter is, I don't think our unit's gonna go to the Pacific. Well, it looks like I'll be eating coconuts after all. Well, it looks like we might get a furlough home, but I don't know if I could stand seeing you and saying goodbye to you all over again. So maybe I don't even want there to be a furlough. And it's just- uh, So so what actually happened to him? Did he end up uh, not going over there? He didn't. Well, the atomic bomb solved that problem. But even yeah. with that, he's philosophical about it, saying, what have we unleashed? How do we control it? Um, he was a much more philosophical guy in the 40s than the dad that my sisters and I knew. And he'll, you know, he, one of the letters he wrote on what used to be called Armistice Day, which is now Memorial Day, which marked the end of World War I. And so he said, well, today is Armistice Day, but what does that mean? Because here we are in the middle of another world war. Are we gonna have a second Armistice Day when this thing is over? And then he said, I just think man is always gonna have a war every 20 years or so. I'm sorry to say it, but I just think that's the way it is and wondering about how, how much of Europe will go communist after it's over. Um, he would see German villagers. He said, it's Sunday and I see the people going to church just as you would in any city. But I think, what do these people pray to? What kind of God do they have that they could have chosen a monster like Hitler to lead them? How can they call themselves people of God? So there's just, there's just it's a very rich, treasury of stuff and uh and this almost 50 photos uh dad took a lot of snapshots and all sorts of things he and and lots of adventures with the dog that he adopted nancy who also upstaged a bob hope uso show dad had a great seat and he was holding the dog and there was a tap dancer a female tap dancer and as she got to her finale she it was a big the fury of taps 
that got louder on the wooden stage. And Nancy freaked out and jumped out of dad's arms and went running across the stage. And the, and the tap dancer was scared that the dog was going to bite her. So she stopped dancing. And dad called, Nancy, Nancy, get back here. And Nancy went back to dad. And then Bob Hope came out and said, you better hold on to that. If Crosby sees it, he's going to throw a saddle over it. Because Crosby was investing in thoroughbreds at the time. And horses that didn't pan out well were called dogs. So, and then this is really weird. But nearly 50 years later, I was in Bob Hope's house in Toluca Lake because I was with Dick Cabot, who we had become friends and I'd worked for him. And during a break in the taping, I said, Bob, in Darmstadt, Germany, in the summer of 1945, my dad went to see your show and he was holding his dog. And I told him the story and, and did the punchline about, about Crosby throws a saddle over it. And Hope laughed and he said, hey, did, did I say that? Is that what I said? Isn't that something? And it was so weird, nearly 50 years later, to give the line back to the guy that originated it in the middle of World War II in Germany back again and see him get a kick out of his sense of humor all over again. Very strange. Well, the title of the book is, once again, Salamis and Swastikas, Letters Home from a G.I. Jew by Steve Stolyer. How do we get this book? You can't. I bought up all the copies and burned them. No, wait, that's not right. Wait, wait, no. Well, both actually both books, that and Raised Eyebrows, the Groucho book, are available on Amazon in Kindle or softcover. Or if anyone would like a signed or personalized copy of either book or both, you can go to my website, which is Steve Stolier, S-T-O-L-I-A-R.com. And uh, I just sell them for the cover price and shipping. So it isn't any less than Amazon. I'll be happy to sign one to you or just, you know, if you have friends who are uh, history buffs or World War II or, uh, you know, Holocaust or Judaism in the second book or obviously classic comedy and Groucho and the Marx Brothers in the other book, either or either. There's my, my, uh, shameless pitch for my own wares well you, you it was uh, well worth hearing because you've been wonderful just Aww. hearing you talking about groucho and your dad and all the people you've met and i feel like uh, i want you to come back on the show we can talk a little bit about woody uh definitely that would be a total blast um this is i have much to say on that good good because yeah. i i i want to hear it and yeah. uh so everybody, uh, uh, thank you for listening to uh, Saturday Night the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. You've been great. And more people are coming to the party and learning what we offer on the history front. Uh, this is the Lock 22 Network. Our wonderful guest tonight has been Steve Stolier, who is uh, filled with mirth. And I like to use that word mirth because I don't think we get enough mirth these days. Or frankincense. <laughs> thank you steve my pleasure our, thanks our, for having me oh you're welcome and our producer i always like to mention him ben shrewsbury Hi, who ben. puts this show together thank you ben and good night everyone